Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2, the deuce. Nice, what are you drinking? I'm, um, it's been a bit of a week. I'm actually mixing a cocktail. Oh, fair enough. Very we'll cool. get we're to that a, a, We're going handsome Johnny tonight. Ooh, okay. nice. So uh, we're, we're going to get to your week in just a second, but let me introduce our storyteller for the day. It is Will the Thrill. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, right up top, I know this episode may or may not be late, uh, depending on the rest of uh, tonight. The but next 24 hours. We've had quite a week on all yeah. fronts. Uh, first of all, T, do you care to uh, enlighten our audience as to uh, your last week? Yeah. So normally I bring the slap nuts and silly, and I don't get to do that today. As I've mentioned many times, as regular listeners know, I'm the editor and uh, a writer for a newspaper. And we had a serial killer hiding in the woods in the county uh, where I work for uh, seven days. That entailed over 300 law enforcement officers, including the FBI and the ATF, traipsing through uh, uh, the woods in a little community called Richburg for seven days. And the community was gripped with fear and people were like carrying shotguns and, and like packing pistols while they walked their dogs and mowed their grass. How is that any different um, than normal? Yeah, it Well, that, that, so that part, so in that, in that sense, it was very much like normal, but... Um, <laughs> But they did it with a sense of fear, which is a, a kind of a different deal. I can happily report there's not been much happy to report when you're talking about a, a serial killer. But he was taken without a shot being fired and nobody being injured other than the you know alleged victims that are in, in his way. But he was taken with, without incident and without a shot being fired yesterday. So our hearts go out to those family members that lost people. Like that is not something that we joke about here on Rock and Roll Heaven. And, you know, our hearts and our, our thoughts and prayers go to those families. And I, I, I promise henceforth I'm going to make jokes about, you know, toot and pooners or whatever. Fair enough. We would expect Fair nothing less. Yeah. Having gotten the weighty stuff out of the way. <laughs> so so this episode is probably going to be a little late. We apologize for that. But the uh, he was he was trapped on Sunday, right? They spotted him on Sunday, and then he was caught on Monday morning. So you got pulled into a meeting on Monday night. Our normal recording day is Sunday, so. Right. And sun, so. Sunday, about, what, about two or three hours before we were going to record, I got word that there had been a sighting. So actually, no, it was I, a half hour before we recorded. It was like we were we were about to record, and then I just had to say, "Hey, uh, yeah, <laughs> about that, yeah, yeah, about that." I I get to go sit in my office and watch social media and listen to a scanner for the next eight hours until about <laughs> one in the morning is how long that ended up taking. But um, and, and wait then, for the ATF to call, <laughs> right? Yeah, which is which is not a thing that I expected to be saying on a random. <laughs> on a random May weekend, but um, 
yeah, but th- thankfully that that's all been resolved. And uh, but that did uh, push our recording schedule back because it was like, well, we're going to do it Sunday. No, we're not. Okay, how about Monday? Yeah, I just had a three and a half hour meeting and I'm sleepy. So. <laughs> LD and Will the Thrill have been kind enough to accommodate my schedule, and I appreciate it. I think we needed it. There was a little. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm. I'm just gonna say I got a promotion at work, so I went from AP to just a P. So now I'm just a. Now I'm a casting producer for You Bet Your Life. So you guys can still apply. You can check out any of the socials at the end of the show, and just send me a message, and I will send you all the info if you're interested in being a contestant on the reboot of You Bet Your Life with. Jay Leno and Kevin Eubanks. Do do we want to do the happy news or the no, sad, we'll do the sad news? news? Sad first. news. Okay. Let's get all the weird stuff out. So we did have someone pass away. So I'm actually, you know, happy that we we are recording today because then we can give uh, proper honor to Samuel E. Wright, who was the voice of Sebastian. Yeah. He passed away at the age of 75. Uh, for anybody who grew up in the 90s, you knew his voice. And actually, he did some stuff with the Lion King, but he was he was such a cool voice. He was a Broadway guy, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was a Broadway guy brought in to, to do this, the voice of Sebastian. Wait, Sebastian's like the little uh, crab? Yes. Yep, the same. Oh, 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 okay. Oh, gosh, that is sad. And yeah, gosh, what yeah, what a, an incredibly distinctive voice. Yes, he was he would have had. phenomenal. And I, I got to tell you, I, I, like, I don't know how many times mom had to buy The Little Mermaid uh vhs because i would keep watching under the sea over and over again until literally one day it snapped and it broke the vhs player so to buy a new player. Yep. yeah true that's a true real thing that happened <laughs> she watched, if i heard that damn under the sea song one more time <laughs> because it's not just that you heard it when she played it she sang it incessantly Yes, Almost right. as much as she did New Kids and Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah, I can relate to this with <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> uh, just occasionally, it's just, never gonna be president now. Never gonna be president now. And then, you know what? That's stuck in your head all day. It's kind of like an iPod shuffle on constant repeat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've still got the heart and soul of an eight-year-old child from the Midwest. I just, I'm gonna listen to Let It Go. 400 times before I actually let it because go. Because I can. <laughs> I'm an adult. Yeah. I pay for my Spotify. Exactly. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, so uh, let's move on. Good news. Good news. Good we news. had a birthday, I believe, on Monday. Uh, so maybe the timing of this is fortuitous. We would like to wish a happy 80th birthday to Bob Dylan. And our friend Mark, who Big contributed fan. to mm-hmm. our Beastie Boys episode, actually posted that that is... Uh, somewhat of a religious holiday in his family's house i believe so. yeah, he was a massive dylan fan massive yeah and um I, I mean obviously thankfully he is not eligible for inclusion on our podcast yet correct he has come up a lot in the last year as we've done some episodes on protest songs and um what segregation and rock i think that was one where he came up a yeah. lot yeah and in an upcoming series hint, hint. He figures prominently. <laughs> Ooh. That's all I'll say. Yep, no more spoilers, but it's it's coming. It's going to be good. Yes, yes, but happy 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 birthday, and may you remain forever young. 
Wow. Okay. So uh, what are we talking about? So that was clever because he had a song call for every young. Yeah. We'll I, I saw what you did there. Yeah. yeah. We're just going to move on. <laughs> so I thought we'd talk more about Whitney Houston. Oh, because, really? Because uh, she bears a number of episodes. You know, when we talk about these heavy hitters, you have people that, you know, have transcended decades and have done all these different things. And the one thing everyone just keeps saying about Whitney Houston, whenever we post on social media, is just her voice, her voice, her voice. So that alone includes her in the pantheon of some of the greatest singers and we want to look at the whole of her life everything uh and that's going to include some things that are not going to be so much fun to talk about and i'm sure many of us know what they are growing up in the reality tv generation so just a quick uh, reminder if you have not listened to part one i'm going to recommend you do that i don't think this is the time to jump in because we've already covered the first 18 years of whitney's life and bear in mind she has yet to cut her first album that's going to be in this episode here oh, today she's incorrect yeah so yeah there's a lot See, going- i was gonna say she actually she actually started a modeling career that's yeah really how she broke yeah. onto the scene she was doing uh i believe sprite spots and then she appeared on 17 magazine and vogue and yeah she was a teen model which is and was she not like what one of the was she a cover girl she was the first woman of color to be featured on the cover of 17 magazine okay yes okay yeah, yeah. significant yeah. but i'm trying to think was there a was there a makeup company she was doing revlon Mm-hmm. Revlon, okay. Revlon, yep, yeah, so she yeah, was doing so, all- so she was like a, a, re, a pretty big model. Oh, like yeah. These are these are big. I mean, it's not like you're doing ones for you know Jimmy Jack's Quick Stop. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, you're, the the Revlon and Revlon and Sprite are pretty pretty big brands, you know. Yes, the uh, the indomitable Spartanburg institution. I believe it's other places. The Come and Go, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yep, great drink fountain, from what I understand. So. If you are joining us for the first time, please back up one episode and check out the part one of Whitney Houston so you can join us where we are today. We covered a lot of things, including Whitney's famous family. The pedigree is undeniable from Sissy Houston, Dee Dee Warwick, and of course, Dionne Warwick. And let us not forget that this is, of course, someone from my home state, the small but mighty state of New Jersey. And I know we're talking about a state battle upcoming, which we may have to have. We'll have to find a way to include that. respective artists from those states and see who comes out ahead south carolina versus new jersey people who you got exactly take your picks wager now so when we left off whitney was not yet 18 but as we've already talked about that's by no means a reason to discredit the accomplishments that she made whitney had been singing professionally for several years at this point she sang with her mother and hey, hey, hey. before you get all like oh she hasn't done my- when was the last time you got signed to a makeup deal uh, um it's still in the works I- i'm waiting yeah, yeah exactly mr god I, I i haven't signed a makeup deal since i was in my late 30s exactly yes, yeah I'm- but see how long it took you to get there so don't spit on that Who's spinning on it? What I'm pointing out is by this age, she had already done so much. And she was a backup vocalist for major, major singers like Shaka Khan. She appeared on her mother's albums. She was working with some of the top producers of the day. We mentioned in the last episode, the dueling Pauls, as I call them, Paul Jabara and Paul Schaefer, who formed the Weather Girls. And there was a gentleman that, TJ, you were right about this. I went back, I did some digging, and Mike Zager is, in fact, the Mike Zager you were referring to. Uh, Zager is a major producer who, of course, worked with artists like Sissy and Whitney Houston, but other acts include Herb Albert, Peebo Bryson, I know, the late Luther Vandross, Denise Williams, and Jennifer Holliday. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was the Ziggur TJ you were talking about. He also, I, I, for those of you who may not be familiar with his works, I think one of the most notable ones was a song he put together in 1980, which is The Spinners, Working My Way Back to You. <laughs> oh, God, classic. Yeah. And for the record, Zager is from Passaic, New Jersey. Oh, look at He's you. a New Jersey Just boy. tying all the Jersey folks I'm, I'm getting them all together, yeah. It's like Game of Thrones, all our great houses. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to be honest with you. I'm, a, I'm well into a fairly stiff cocktail. Whom did I allege that he was? <laughs> Well, you basically alluded to the idea that um, he was a major producer, and I, at that point, wasn't entirely sure, so I went back and I researched. Oh, okay. Yeah, finding out that Zager is a major producer. Big, oh, okay. Yeah. So all the, while this is going on, Whitney is basically growing up in the business. As we mentioned in the last episode, she was almost literally born into it when her mother was working in the very late stages of her pregnancy. And she, Whitney, recalls being in the studios with her auntie Ree, who of course is Aretha Franklin. She performed in nightclubs, including Manhattan's prominent town hall right in Midtown Manhattan. And as TJU had mentioned, her modeling career was well underway, which would be grounds enough to be, you know, accomplishing major things by the age of 18. As we mentioned last week, she signed with Click Models, would eventually go over to Wilhelmina Talent. Whitney, as we said before, became the first woman of color to appear on the cover of Seventeen magazine. That was November of 1981. She was also the face of Revlon Cosmetics and Sprite. So she was well on her way at this point. But like I said, folks, that's just part one. So we've now caught up. We are now into part two. And it's important that we talk about some of the professional people in Whitney's life. By this stage, she was getting courted left and right by managers and record labels. And all of them had the same vision. Dollar signs, big money, we're going to get it out there. But one person saw her differently. And one person saw her as an artist that was more than that. And as we get back into the life of Whitney Houston, we have to introduce the incomparable Clive J. Davis. So let me give a little background on Clive because I'm sure you've all heard of him. And if you haven't, you will know as I go through this who he is. Clive is a native New Yorker. He was born in Brooklyn on April 4th, 1932. So by the way, Clive is still with us as of this oh, recording. Wow. Yeah, 1932. He grew up he in- He came before the war? Yes, he did. Wow. <laughs> He grew up in the Crown Heights area of Brooklyn to a Jewish in a Jewish household. He would eventually go on to graduate NYU as a member of Phi Beta Kappa. So he's no slouch. He received a full scholarship to Harvard Law. So again, pretty like cool. uh, like did he play football or something? No, on on academics. They give you they'll give you money for being smart. I had never <laughs> heard of this. I know. If only I know sooner, I would yeah. be smart. But I wouldn't have been eligible for it. But, yeah. Uh, that, that ship has sailed, but anyway. Uh, so by the time 1960 rolls around, Clive Davis gets a job with Columbia Records. The company sort of reorganized and they turned into what is what became CBS Records. And Clive was one of the leaders of this arm called CBS Records. He would spend the next 10 years acquiring some of the top talent alongside a name, LD, you know this person, Lou Adler. Okay, yeah, uh, Lou Adler, the reason why I'm very familiar with Lou Adler's work and his son, Cisco, uh, is because he actually did uh, some of the music and uh, 
you know, took on some of the producing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Let's Do the Time Warp again. And I was lucky enough to get to work on it as one of the uh, music assistants for that film with <gasps> Tim Curry. Yep. And it was the greatest moment of my <laughs> life. So yes, Lou Adler. So you know Lou. Yes. Well, he and Davis were kicking around at this point. This is the late 60s, just trying to grab up the best talent they could find. And they both went to the famous Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, which we covered on our Jimi Hendrix episode. And it's also available now uh, via Criterion Collection for $39.99, or you can check it out on HBO, the app. <laughs> Which there we we have a nickname for it, but we're not we're gonna, gonna not we're not gonna share that. We're not gonna share the HBO yes. nickname. So, it's HBO Merkins. Yes. How this came about <laughs> is truly a mystery. Traumatizing. <laughs> so as we all know, that's the famed Jimi Hendrix performance, and the Monterey Pop Festival is considered one of the greatest concert series of all time. It's one of. True. Yeah. Accurate. Now, there were many acts in attendance in the festival, which was 1967 from June 16th to June 18th, but one act was notably left out because they had undergone a personnel switch one year prior. They had an album come out in 1967, which was Ha Ha Said the Clown, which charted in the UK but didn't get them a lot of traction in the States, but that band would be back in 1968 with two more albums and a single, and if you can't figure it out, the band I'm talking about is Manfred Our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast has been satisfied. Uh, we're going yeah. to get calls about this at some point. <laughs> I'm looking forward to yes, it. Please, Manfred Mann's people, call uh, us. I, I, I would be flattered I, with a defamation lawsuit at this point. <laughs> I'd probably ask him to autograph it for me. <laughs> I, I, yeah. But the thing is, we've never said anything bad about no. them. We, In fact, me and Will went to, and I was so excited, I have to say this, we went to Amoeba Records. The new Amoeba the Records. The new Amoeba yeah. Records. When we figured out that you weren't going to be able to record on Sunday, me and Will took a little trip down to Hollywood over to the, the newly opened, well, I think it opened like maybe a month ago, uh, yeah. Amoeba Records. It's in this new location. And I searched for <laughs> Manfred Mann's Earth Band vinyl. We were going to send it to you. And we were going to send yeah. it to you. But they didn't have any of the good ones. So... Uh, I, I just want to point out that on our social media feeds, we are getting Manfred Man comments from listeners, like related to that, which I think is. Are amazing. we really? Oh, that's uh, that's awesome! I love it. I love it. Play along, and, so, you don't, uh, and you don't and you don't be bringing any bougie ass dusty old forty five to me. I want the good stuff. <laughs> oh no, we'll get we'll get you. Excuse me, waiter. There's a yawn in my ear. Just wait, okay. <laughs> So suffice to say, sorry, Clive Davis did not acquire Man for Man's Earth Band. However, they would, uh, appear, they would appear later on Arista Records. So back to Whitney. So Clive also did not pick up Jimi Hendrix during this time at the Monterey Pop Festival. So he had to settle for another act. Maybe you've heard of her, Janis Joplin. Yeah. But the interesting thing was, this is where Davis really shined because he had an eye, but he also had an urge to groom talent. So Janice was almost the perfect candidate for him. Uh, other notable signings by Clive Davis included, here we go, Chicago, oh, Billy Joel, yeah, Bruce Springsteen. That guy's not going to go anywhere. Pink Floyd. Yeah, they're good. Loggins and Messina. Wait, like, like Kenny, Kenny Loggins? Loggins? Yep. Mm -hmm. And... Jody. Yep. Oh, wow. 
and a tiny band out of Boston, maybe you know, called Aerosmith. Did he sign anybody that panned out? Uh, yeah, I'm going through the list here. Uh, let after, me see. Uh, after that string of after that string of stinging disappointments, did, yeah. he ever, did he did he ever strike gold with anybody? Or, yeah, I mean, there was Sly the Family Stone, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, where where does this? But, list, uh, uh, but he did, but uh, but no, uh, but no Ram Jam or uh, Black Oak, yeah. Arkansas. <laughs> no Tower of Power. The Eternal Triangle passed him by. Oh yeah, and we're clearly joking about that string of disappointments because if you heard any music after 1965. Clive Davis probably had a hand in it. And here's the thing, too. Um, Clive Davis, I'm pretty sure, has a Broadway musical based on his life, and I don't think you get there by, <laughs> you know, plugging away at hacks. So he has one of the greatest ears, and he's got mm. such a machine that was set up just to create these star makers, you know? Yeah, he knew how to acquire the talent for the talent, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, wasn't his yeah. name the Kingmaker? Yeah, the Kingmaker. He was dubbed the Kingmaker, oh, and nice. in this case, a Queenmaker. So he was known for developing talent and also bringing them back onto the scene. So I guess reinventing? Is yeah. that the term? Mm -hmm. uh, some, some of the most notable talents, again, another string of disappointment. I mentioned Sly and the Family Stone, Janis Joplin, but also this guy, Carlos Santana. Uh, however, in, in a later article in Rolling Stone, Davis said that one of his great regrets was passing on John Cougar Mellencamp. He had the chance to sign him, and he didn't. Okay, but was it because he had Bruce Springsteen? He had Springsteen, Was yeah. it kind of like when Billy Joel went up and they were like, yeah, we would like to sign you, but we signed this other guy who plays piano? And, and it was Elton. And it was Elton John? Yeah, I think because they already had the Springsteen thing, so Springsteen... They had the, they had the Heartland rocker already. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's the thing is, I don't, I don't think a lot of people understand like quite how formulaic it is. And there is a thing in uh, the industry where sometimes they will contract people that are like an artist that they have specifically to shelve them so that mm -hmm. they don't have any competition. They just buy and them they, out. They basically buy them out. So you can't yeah. get different, you know, you can't cut an album. You can't, it was just, you know, they could and cut just, albums, but it would be shelved, you know? And, and tie, they tie them up in hiatus forever. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. I, I doubt that Clive would have made him call himself Johnny Cougar when he first started. Probably not. Yeah, probably a change that he might have suggested. Um, needless to say, Clive had pretty much a what he touched turned to gold. And that is going to be no exception, as we will see. Now, it's interesting to see how Arista Records comes into play, because as we know, Clive was sort of the driving force behind it. But there's a bit of controversy behind that. Somewhere in the early 70s, 73, 74, Clive had what can only be documented as a falling out, and I'm quoting here, with CBS Records. Basically, they canned him. Why? So there are some accounts saying, and I think this is quite hilarious, that Davis was accused of embezzling money, which he used to fund his son's bar mitzvah. <laughs> um, Davis denies any of this, and so do his attorneys. There was also a suspected pay-to-play scandal with Columbia and CBS Records. That, See, yeah, that, that I believe. And, and maybe, that maybe. Believe. Now, this is all alleged. I, can, I have the to say bar mitzvah, yeah. I don't think. So, right. Okay, so you say... Pay to play like payola, you mean? Payola yeah, scandal, payola yeah. Scandal, mm -hmm. scandal, with uh, like, Columbia. Yeah. Which was amazing. Yeah, I worked, I worked in radio. I've watched things exchange hands. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I compare it to steroids in baseball. Everyone's doing it. It's just when they get caught that they make a big deal of it. There, there was a reason that a, a big deal was made of it that had nothing to do with integrity when it happened back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Actually, payola was on our short, like our opening when we were doing our opening acts. 
It was actually on our list, but I think I'm actually going to tie that in when we do an episode on Alan Freed. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because there, there were there were things going on that really had nothing to do with integrity that brought that in. Yes, no, I worked in radio for a while, and I, I, I watched things ex- be exchanged. Oh, sure. Now, oftentimes it wasn't cash money. It was stuff, but it was yeah. still stuff. It was stuff. Yeah. And so, so that's the thing. If, if this is what Clive Davis was doing, again, this is alleged, I'd safe to say so is everybody else. You know? yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, so needless to say, Clive parts ways with CBS, and he basically says, well, I'm going to take my toys and go home. So he picks up a very small label at that time called Bell Records. And by 1974, Clive became the head of Bell Records and renamed it Arista Records. Now, what was interesting was when this happened, Clive was basically going to lose all his talent. Everybody that was on Arista was going to go. So he had to pick two artists to keep. There were only two artists that he could contract them each for only one more album with Arista. So Clive goes through the roster. He picks two unknown talents, Melissa Manchester and Barry Manilow. Oh, yeah, okay. So he rolled that dice and he won. Yeah. And for one record, so that basically built the foundation of Arista, which as we all know is going to be very successful. But needless to say, they were like, yeah, you get this Barry Manilow guy. And Clive was like, yeah, give me one album. And that's all it took. (laughs) So fair enough. There you go. So Clive and Arista went on to great success in the decades ahead, 70s and 80s. Now, a lot of people say in print that, and this is what I found in a lot of my research, which thankfully the biographies went a little deeper, is that Clive Davis, quote, discovered Whitney Houston. That's a very tip of the iceberg sort of approach. And it sort of overlooks everything that was involved with Whitney's family, their existing connections to Clive Davis, and how Clive really, again, built her career. So we come back to the topic of grooming talent, and we have to bring up the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. When the disco era came in, Aretha Franklin's popularity did start to decline. And by 1980, she wasn't as hot a commodity. And actually, her contract with Atlantic Records was up. So she was a free agent at this point. So Clive brings her over to Arista, made her a top priority got her songwriters, got her producers, set her up with publicity. And in that same year, she would release her first album with Arista, which was the self-titled Aretha album, which is something else Clive liked to do. Albums were named just by the artist. This would be the first of 10, 10 albums that Clive would produce for Aretha Franklin from 1980 to 2003. Her 1985 album, Who's Zoomin' Who, is considered... Who's Zoomin' Who? You know it. Yeah, you know it. (laughs) It's considered one of the best. And of course, on the Arista label, uh, Aretha Franklin teamed up with producer Narada Michael Walden, who's going to come up. And it's interesting about uh, Narada Michael Walden. He is the current drummer for Journey. In case you were wondering, where are they now? Aretha Franklin released a bunch of classics on that album, Sweet Bitter Love, Sisters Doing It For Themselves. And I mean, we all know it free way of love well, what is it saying hot fuzz pure fried gold right pure fried gold Pure fried gold that was not actually hot fuzz that was sean that was sean of the dead. dead nice thank you you're welcome uh, the album would peak at number 13 on the billboard chart and went on to be a platinum album for arista records so in the early 80s aretha was working with clive davis so was her cousin dion warwick and it was through them that they told Arista's A&R man, which for those of you who don't know that abbreviation, A&R is for artists and repertoire. 
His name was Jerry Griffin. They said, you gotta come check this girl out. Apparently this came from Dion. So Griffith goes down to one of the nightclubs, checks out Whitney. And of course he goes back to Clive and says, you gotta see this girl. Hmm. So to say Clive discovered her is not the whole story. And of course they're floored. They want to bring her in. Now, there's another layer to this, and one of the cornerstones of my research for this episode actually comes from a biography about Whitney by an author named Mark Brigo, and it's a wonderful biography. Um, that, among other things, again, compiled this research. Clive had actually lost a major talent. There was a young woman named Phyllis Hyman who was an up-and-coming singer. Clive was managing her, and she ended up having substance abuse problems, and tragically, she took her own life. Oh, no. So some say that the theory is Clive saw this in Whitney and almost saw the redemption there for that. Mm. Again, theory, we weren't there. We don't know. So at this time, uh, Whitney had been performing and showcasing, and certainly she would have her pick of offers. Columbia came to her. Electra Records came to her. So she didn't know what to do. She turns to her mother, who has obviously been in the business now for quite some time. They agreed on one thing. Whitney was going to finish school first. They said no offers until she graduates. In my head, all I see is her like walking across the stage, like in her, you know, cap and gown, the diploma in her hand and like four guys just standing there with contracts (laughs) like, you're done. (laughs) I mean, you're not far from the truth. Really, everyone was courting Whitney Houston at this point. And she went to her mother and said, I need guidance. And her mother basically said, you're right, you're 18, you need guidance. That was the selling point for Clive Davis. He wasn't just going to market her. He was going to guide her. Now, one of the things that was a big appeal was how Clive listened to music. He was well known for hosting listening parties. Even to this day, he does this. Mm. Uh, Sadly, from what I understand in my research, he's actually battling Bell's palsy at this point. And he is not a spring chicken. So That's we're, so sad. yeah, we, he's not doing too well. He's almost physically. in his 90s. Yeah. So he would have listening parties with the industry, but he also liked to listen to music with his artists. And that was one of the things that stood out is she finally signs with Arista. Clive gets a hold of her and says, Hey, I want you to listen to these songs. And she says, Okay, great. I'll come out. O- I'll, I'll listen to him. He's like, No, no, no. You have to come over. I want you to be with me when we hear it. So at first, it sounds a little That's creepy, creepy, old man ish. Yeah. But it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. It's not though. So Whitney, I mean, would, but also yeah. like we have the hindsight of li- living through like the Me Too movement right. and like you know Bill Cosby and oh, Jeffrey geez. Epstein and people like that. So like, Why don't you a, come over to painted. come over to my pad and listen to some LPs, pretty lady? Exactly. Yeah, it sounds yeah. overtly creepy. Yeah, but, but it was also like what is this? The eighties? This is nineteen eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like it was different back then. We we were allowed to like run outside as long as we showed up by the time the lights you know came back on on the street lights so you know it was a completely different time now it's a little creepy but back then that seems i mean and it, it he's kind of established himself as somebody who can be you know trusted yeah so. so he would have her come over and they would listen to songs together so one of the things that would happen was clive would sort of stop the tape and say okay right there hear that right there and it would be something about it that stood out to him And as these sessions continued, it became interesting because they would spend hours listening to music together. And eventually it flipped. Whitney would be the one stopping tape and saying, okay, right here, listen to that. So they had this sort of synergy and it was clear that there was a a professional connection there. And he was going to be her mentor. And that was clear from day one. His goal was to get the best 
people he could around Whitney Houston. So he found songwriters, producers, photographers, stylists, event planners, again, everything. He connected her with all of these, these different people. So like I said, you know, the talent around the talent, that was really his, his thing. Will, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we do need to take a short sponsor break and we will be right back. And we're back. Let's get back to Whitney Houston. It was about creating this image of Whitney Houston, which we've discussed before. She was being marketed as the good girl. And she was also setting herself apart from some contemporaries of the day. One of the big ones was actually Madonna, who was sort of going in the bad girl direction yeah. at this point. Uh, so they were really trying to match that image. And also her voice was just ethereal. There was no, no matching it. So oh. this is still early. This is 1982. Uh, Whitney's album, Bear Mind, is still a couple years off because she signed with them. But Davis didn't put out the album right away. He did a whole bunch of parties and engagements. Uh, some of the very popular ones happened at, and this is sort of creepy if you know where things are going, at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. Uh, I don't. Whitney will eventually pass there. Uh, uh, they, uh, okay. just, I think she, yeah. that's where she died. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it became well known for Clive's Grammy parties, and it was his, quote, but, second home when he came to LA. But that's like, that's yeah. like a cotillion. That's like her mm -hmm. coming out. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. this is yeah. Whitney. That's her coming out. That's yeah. her being introduced into this community of musicians. Right. And, and part of that was an introduction, actually, on the Merv Griffin show. Oh, Apparently, wow. Clive Davis was friends with Merv Griffin because he knew everybody. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and his his famous intro for Whitney, going back to what you said, the coming out, is what he, he would say every time Whitney got on stage, either you've got it or you don't, she's got it. And that's how he would introduce her and just let her do her thing. But that's the thing. Yeah. She really did. She don't. No question. Oh, that voice. But she didn't record until 1984. Wow. Yeah, so two years to prep for her new album, she began with a song that would be a duet with famed vocalist Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah, wow. And he would record this song that I'm going to share with you. And it's interesting because Pendergrass actually recorded a song called Choose Me with Sissy Houston. Oh, that's funny. Now he's performing this song with her daughter, Whitney. So I'm going to share this one with you. This is Whitney Houston and Teddy Pendergrass from 1984 with Hold Me. Yes. 
Pendergrass and Whitney Houston. Danny, my man. I don't yep. know if there's a more 1984-ish song. That was... Yeah, it's pretty... It was 80s-tastic. It I really love was. it. I mean, but you can see, you can hear vocally where she is moving to early on. I mean, she's got the voice of a freaking angel. Yeah, she's like 20 at this point. Too. Yeah, so... Yeah. And she's still singing back up, and she's she's so close to being the biggest star on the planet. It's, it's yeah. That's almost funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Like wow, you're just like in like a year and a half. 
No, yeah, you're, you're going to be everywhere. Yeah, I mean, she's the biggest thing that there is. And you're, right now you're singing back up for Teddy, which is not a bad gig. No, not at all. Who, who sadly passed away from complications due to a car accident, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but I mean, I, I would I would say I, I would take a, a job singing for like a Teddy Pendergrass tribute band. <laughs> it was offered to oh, me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So ladies love Teddy. I, ladies love Teddy. I don't know if y'all were aware of that or not. Oh, they do. Oh, yes. And Teddy was actually brought on, you know, in other capacities for the album. Clive Davis also hired Michael Masser, who is a composer. You might know him for songs that he did for Barbara Streisand, Perry Como, Aretha Franklin, Shirley Bassey. Roberta Flack, I know George Benson, <laughs> Diana Ross, Aretha Franklin, just just a few names you, you may know. Um, yeah, I mean, they might not go anywhere, but... I but mean, you I may have heard of them. them. Yeah. But I like them anyway. But I like them anyway. <laughs> before, I liked them before it was cool. Uh, you and, mean when you were four? <laughs> exactly, when I was sitting there shaking my fist in my diapers. <laughs> and of course, she would team up with a well-known Jackson. No, not that one. Uh, that's going to actually come later. We do have Michael connections here with Whitney. This is actually Jermaine, who was brought on as a producer and a songwriter. Now I'm going to take you, LD, to a place you love. Wither Tito. <laughs> Wither Tito. <laughs> the Limelight. Yeah. Like the limelight. The limelight. Okay. On West 20th. Here's the deal about the limelight. I was I was a patron of the limelight in the year 2001. Mm -hmm. So that was 20 years ago. So you can imagine <laughs> just little baby LD at age 21 at this club. Now the, the limelight is incredible because it was actually an old church they converted it into a nightclub. So the acoustics in there are insane. It's crazy, yeah. And there are multiple rooms and tons of, you know, hidey holes. I mean, somebody should write a book about, you know, all the, the debauchery that went on in that church. But, uh, but yeah, the limelight is like the actual structure of it is so beautiful. And I don't think it's a nightclub anymore. I think they no, actually lost not. it, but it was like, yeah. it was a big staple in the uh, club kids scene. And, really was. you know, in that resurgence of electro music and everything that went along with it, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take you back to 1984. The club had been only open one year when in comes Clive Davis to throw one of his parties featuring a young Whitney Houston and Jermaine Jackson. Can I make one one quick point? Okay, because I made a joke about Jermaine mm -hmm. a minute ago. Yeah. 1984, he would be fresh off the victory tour. So... Mm -hmm. This, that that's in retrospect now we would kind of kind of teacher right yeah but but in 1984 that's a pretty big deal oh he was walking on water oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Any, anybody with the last name jackson at that point was he was insanely talented and the thing oh, yeah. is like most of the jacksons get looked over because of janet and michael, michael. yeah and that's that is really super sad because they they were crazy talented oh yeah this is, this, so think about it. this is a brand new artist on the scene and jermaine jackson is with her so that says a lot uh, we're going to launch into the song from 1984 which would later appear on whitney's eponymous album here is take good care of my heart
are back. That is some swanky sass. That is some 80s. That is 80s-tastic. Absolutely time-stamped as 80s. You don't <laughs> even have to tell me. I could listen to five seconds of that and go, huh, 84? 85? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yep. Just yep. the saxophone. Yeah. Yep. But her voice, gorgeous. Of voice course. of an angel. And that would be one of two duets that Whitney and Jermaine Jackson would perform on her album, which, yes, is still not released. We are not there yet. Uh, Davis spent almost two years building up a buzz around Whitney Houston, which was all the parties, all the engagement tours, the listening parties, everything. So by the time 1985 rolled around, everyone was ready to get this album out. And like I said, it was almost two years in the making, and it's estimated that Clive spent about a quarter of a million dollars on ramp-up for the album. I mean, I wonder... My 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 curiosity leads toward like why was he taking so long to put it out? Because was he was he grooming other acts like this, or was this something that he was doing specifically for Whitney because he saw so much talent in her? It, it was for Whitney, based on everything I could research. He was doing all of this, and he was there too. And here's the thing: if anyone had a problem with it, the buck stopped with Clive. So you had a problem with it? Too bad. The head of the West Coast PR division for Arista, a lady named Barbara Shelley, said, in putting the album package together, there was no rushing the project. Neither Clive nor anyone else involved would settle for second best. So much care went into this album that it didn't seem like it would ever come out. <laughs> those were her words. So it was like Chinese democracy. Oh, yes, but uh, with a not, better better payoff. Not, it, was not, like, it, was, it was like Chinese democracy, except good. If everyone liked Chinese democracy, yes. It, hang on, before we go any further, guys, we're not actually talking about Chinese democracy. <laughs> we're talking about the Guns N' Roses album. Correct. We're talking about the super shitty uh, Guns N' Roses album that wasn't actually Guns N' Roses. Nobody, right. nobody ever says that's my favorite Guns N' Roses album. Exactly. Yeah. So at this point, Whitney was largely known as being sort of, you know, related to famous people. And all that was about to change with the release of this album, which is largely considered her best. Now, I don't know if you've gone back and revisited this album. I'm going to recommend that you do. Uh, songs like Someone For Me came off of this album. Nobody Loves You Like I Do. All My Love For You, which as we know, Saving All My Love For You. Oh, which, which was not the song you need to be using. Kids, look. <laughs> the, the audience of rock and roll heaven here's the thing when you're picking out your wedding song please do yourself a favor and listen to do, the lyrics do your research <laughs> because saving all my love for you is not the ballad of eternal love that you think it is it's about a man's side piece mm -hmm. please don't use it and, and sissy would be the first to agree with you she didn't like the song at all and wanted it removed from the album well it's about yeah. it's immoral yeah so I, I could see why. She said it would reflect poorly on her daughter. And then there is one of the, I think, landmark songs there, which is The Greatest Love of All. Yeah. Which inspired, perhaps, one of the funniest, one of the absolute funniest things in the history of things. The Greatest that Love being, of All? That being Randy Watson. Oh, that's right. From Coming to America. Yes. Really? Yes. Put your hands together for Randy Watson and Sexo Chocolate. chocolate. Sexual chocolate. So good. That's a chocolate. So good. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <sighs> well, neither the funny say. thing is, is if in retrospect thinking about it, that song had really not been in the public sphere that long when that movie would have been 
shot. This is 1984. Yeah. 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 And it was actually part of a biopic about Muhammad Ali. That's where the song was came from. Yeah. It was used on The Greatest, which is a biopic about Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Oh, wow. Whitney's claim, of course, was the love referred to is God's love. That is their religious tone to the piece. So, in fact, Whitney had a lot of sort of, I want to say, opinions about the music she was singing. She got very frustrated. Too loud? Mm -hmm. Um, She got very frustrated with the label Soul as a musical genre. Whitney even said in several interviews, Soul is not a type of music. It's a feeling. It's not just a song. Mm. So after going back to this album, I will say there's just nothing but good stuff on here i am going to entertain the opening track however i'm a big fan of opening album tracks because i think they set the tone for the album as a whole so this one comes from what was it last released in february of 1985 the whitney houston self-titled album here's the opening track you give good love
we're back. We're back. All right. I mean, that's a that seems like a little bit of a risque, naughty song. A little bit, yeah. A little risque. She's you give good the love. Boundary. Yeah. yeah. And that one comes to us from 1985. That's when the album came out in February. There was a re-release in January of 2010 for the 35th anniversary. Now, the critical reception of this album was a tad, shall we say, mixed. Uh, they were accused of... What? What? Wait, uh, no. what? Really? Oh, yeah. The critics, largely the famed critic Robert Criscow, who we've talked about on this, this podcast before. Thankfully, he's not... Many, many, many times, yes. Who, who he's not eligible for, for coverage, but uh, Robert Criscow of The Village Voice, the dean of American rock critics, called it, quote, schlock, end quote. Uh, so that about sums up. Yeah, the the critics basically bashed it for saying it was sticking to the conservative pop formulas, but there was one thing everybody, including Chris Cow, agreed on, and that was Whitney's voice. They said her voice is unreal. He called it sweet and statuesque when he wrote in the voice about Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. The album would hit number one on the R and B chart. It would not get to the top of Billboard for a little while. It did, however, reach top 10 across five different countries. So with the support of Whitney Houston and the, shall we call it, change of heart by MTV Networks, she was getting video play by this point. We all know how. Oh, she, and, and yeah. she was getting lots. Yeah. She was getting lots of it. Well, it's really interesting because there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, first of all, Clive had said that the goal was to establish her first as a black artist. That was, he said, what the goal was. And then from there, to transition from the R&B charts and the rap charts to the pop chart. He said that was the goal. Now, it's impressive for a number of reasons because we've discussed at length what was going on with MTV at this point and the wonderful interview by Mr. David Bowie uh, where he just puts them in their place. Yep. That MTV was, shall we say, reluctant to play artists of color. Now Whitney was about to dismantle this whole thing because she had an appeal with both white and black audiences. So this was really a new thing coming up in the mid 80s. This would also lead to her first venture into film. Following the release of the album, yes, she was lending her talents to the soundtrack for Perfect, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and John Travolta. Wow. So getting back to the fall of 1985, a lot of things are going on sort of concurrently at this point. For one, Whitney would make her first solo appearance at Carnegie Hall, which is a big deal for anybody because you're at Carnegie Hall. Her videos are starting to gain traction. We'll talk about that in a little bit. She's now moving into film. And those of us who know Whitney Houston's career know where this is ultimately leading to one of the biggest movie soundtracks ever. Or the biggest. I think it might still hold the title, yeah. I do believe it does. But another interesting thing happens is Whitney is starting to bring in her family as professional support. Her father, John, actually begins managing her career at this point. So that's a big one. Also, her brother, Michael, is stepping in and managing her career. So this is really becoming sort of a family affair with the Houstons, and they're all sort of moving up with Whitney. There will be a tour in the following year, but the focus, as I mentioned earlier, would be on music videos, including Saving All My Love For You, How Will I Know is the other big one. Uh, These were actually filmed in London, and this work was sort of the first time people looked at Whitney Houston and said, huh, she's got camera presence. Interesting. 
In fact, one of the folks at Arista said, which is weird yeah. because she was doing modeling before. Exactly. Well, th this, this gentleman from Arista actually says that acting is a natural move. And he was first floored by her appearance in a Diet Coke ad. Oh, wow. So you're thinking of that. And as we know, the videos were just starting to gain traction. And I think TJ, you put it best was that this stage was already set for a big shift. And Whitney just took that and just pushed it a million times forward. Right. So, MTV actually rejected, they rejected the video for You Give Good Love. Interesting. What? Yeah, they rejected it. Now, it's interesting how this lines up with the Bowie interview, because suddenly they came back and said, oh, we want to play Saving All My Love for You. Are these things connected? Don't know. History alone will tell us. So before we get to the world tour, we come to the 1986 Grammys, of course, covering 1985. Houston is already being nominated for several AMAs. The controversy is her exclusion for best new artist. She gets called out on a technicality. Hang on, hang on. Grammys, the way you said that was weird. Okay. Is it the Grammys and then the AMAs? Two totally okay. different. So let me let me clarify that. So okay. she's already being nominated for AMAs. She's also going which, to the Grammys, which are the American Music Awards. Correct. And the Grammys are a completely separate thing. Okay. Yes. So Just those are ahead. separate. Um, what I was pointing out is she's already being nominated for stuff, and the Grammys are happening. So it's two separate thoughts. Okay. Uh, when it comes to the Grammys, she gets called out for Best New Artist on a technicality because remember those duets with Teddy Pendergrass and Jermaine Jackson. Yes. Well, they came out in 1984, which in the infinite wisdom of the Grammy nominating committee... Oh, what a load. Yeah, I can see where this is going. Meant she could not be considered a, quote, new artist in because, 1985. But, like, now people will, will win awards for albums that came out, like, two calendar years ago. Mm-hmm. Somehow. Of it. But she, she, was, she did a duet with Teddy Pendergrass, so she's not... That, that's ridiculous. Well, Clive Davis will agree with you, and he, quote, went ballistic. He went right after the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, <laughs> in which he wrote this article in Billboard, which starts with, what does new artist even mean? Get him, Clive. <laughs> oh, he just goes nuts. <laughs> let, let me read you this segment, because it, it's wonderful. He says, how is it that a recording artist can be voted for favorite new female artist in Rolling Stone, newcomer of the year by Entertainment Tonight, top new artist in Billboard, sell over 4 million copies worldwide on her very first album and not be considered a candidate for Best New Artist by the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. <laughs> he wrote that. Yeah. Clive wrote that. So he, he's gone. That's the wild. kind of person you want in your corner oh, yeah. is somebody who will take out like a four-page ad <laughs> and be like, suck it, Grammys. He, he chewed him up. Oh, which, by the way, I will share with you who was nominated for new artists? Oh, 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 yeah. Because this, this of every <laughs> of every Grammy award, yeah, this probably has the most dubious history of any. Yeah, because this is Millie Vanilli. This <laughs> is Mark Cohn. Uh -huh. This is America beating the Eagles. And yeah, don't you dare <laughs> besmirch the good name of America. They but did. They, they beat the Eagles. They shouldn't have yeah, beat the Come on. Come on. They beat the Eagles and John Prine and Loggins and they Messina. Come on. The, they created the soundtrack no. <laughs> for The Last Unicorn, Suck My Ball. 12 years, 12 years later. Let me, let, let me share you. 12 years later, which has nothing to do with Best New Artist. 
Shut up. So let's look at who the best new artists were, and this is going to be laughable, okay? okay? You have Freddie Jackson. Okay. Julianne Lennon, which, hey, of that, course. that guy. Julianne uh, Lennon, okay. Sade. Okay, that makes sense. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Katrina and the Wave. And Katrina and So, needless to say, Whitney was, in my opinion, snubbed there. I yeah. think that was a... That was well, a, I mean, she's no aha. Uh-huh. Thank uh, God. We actually don't know who actually won the award that year. Wait, what year is this? Hang on. This is 1985. We gotta, we gotta look well, up. in 1986. Okay. Covering that. Yeah, I looked at some, yeah, 1986 Grammys. I need to know which one of them won that. Okay. It was Sade. Sade won. Sade won. It was Sade. Well, the Grammys were not a complete loss for Whitney. She was nominated for three. She ended up performing at the ceremony, which would actually earn her an Emmy the following year. Nice. Yeah. For best Wait a minute. So she won an Emmy for a performance at the Grammys? Uh, yeah. Actually, um, yeah. Uh, funny enough, my friend has an Emmy for what he did at the Tonys. Yeah. It happened. Okay, that I've never thought of that being a thing. Because they're televised. Awesome. They're yeah. televised, therefore, if they fall within a a certain date, they are eligible for um for a different award. She performed and she ended up winning an Emmy because of it. Did she actually win a Grammy that year? Oh, she did. She actually, okay. yeah, she actually won Best Pop Female Performance. Nice. And oh, nice. Kicker, okay. The kicker is it was presented to her by her cousin, Dionne Warwick, Aww. which is pretty cool. Oh, very nice. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. This year? I don't know if she did. I have to look that up. Yeah. So this, the album, Whitney Houston, self-titled, had come out, again, as we said, in 1985. It took a little bit of time. By March of 86, which is just over a year later, so after the Grammy Awards, it hit number one on the Billboard chart. So it took over a year. But from there, it remained on the Billboard Top 100 for 162 weeks. So so that's three years. Yep. Whoa. Yep. And a and, and little flashback, do you remember what knocked it out of the number one spot? I cannot recall. It was 5150. No kidding. Yep. Well, it does point out that uh, the album was number one for 14 non-consecutive weeks, which up to that point was a record held by only one other female performer, Carol King. Tapestry? Tapestry, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty elite company to be in with your first record. Yeah, again, this is the first outing, which is pretty amazing. Now, at this time, and TJ, you probably know about this, there was no Nielsen tracking for album sales. That wouldn't come until the early 90s. However, they estimate that this album in that time sold well over a million copies in the U.S., would go on to sell over 6 million copies worldwide, and was considered one of the biggest selling debut albums ever. Because at this point, when you would see the Billboard chart, the sales numbers were almost estimates. Mm Mm-hmm. They called a select number of record stores and said, uh, "So, uh, what'd you sell this week?" Because you didn't get the little the little barcodes that got scanned. I think sound scan is what it was called mm-hmm. until ninety one ish. Really? So it's not yeah, really until about ninety one that we got actual accurate album sale totals. Yeah. So the skew number. Her, so her album may actually have sold even more than what you were able to to find. You know. Yeah, that's what's theorized, and and in the the time of this recording it has sold over 22 million copies Woo! Yeah. hello which is utterly bonkers uh three number one hits came off at greatest love of all saving all my love for you how will i know 
which is actually a first at that time for a female artist to release an album with three number one hits. And and I think it was three the for her first three singles. Yep. Yep. I, I think that was that was another record. No no yeah. other. And we might be into first ever artist, male or female, that their first three singles went to all number one. Yeah. And it's actually still on the list of Rolling Stones' greatest albums of all time. It is still there. So isn't it funny how um, albums like that, in retrospect, end up being better reviewed, better thought of, and more respected than when they were released? Yeah. Because you, you you just mentioned that it was a lot of the. You know, uh, Robert Christgau said it was schlock. It was, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but loved her voice. But they you know, said it was a schlocky uh, album or whatever. The and, songs were schlocky. Yeah. Yes, and this and this and this reviewer didn't like it, and that one didn't like it, and and but then, and, but of course, in retrospect, it's hailed as a masterwork, which it should have been to start with. Yeah. I, I just always find that funny. You, you actually see that a lot. Yeah, it kind of got its due. Yeah. And in 1986, Whitney got a key to the city of Newark by Mayor Kenneth Gibson. Aww. So she was on hiring with a key to the city she grew up in, which is pretty cool. I always cool. want to know what those keys open up. Isn't it like a big ornamental key? Like, it is probably one? is. Yeah. Like, where do you put it, though? Like, it doesn't go on any key chain. Yeah, you gotta put it on your fireplace or something. Yeah. And this is right about the point where Whitney's life began to change. So this gets back to, TJ, what you were talking about earlier, of what was going on with her personal life. You know, what do we know? What do we don't? So let's take a look. She did finally get her own place. She moved into Woodbridge, New Jersey, which was close enough to see her parents. She still had a number of careers and interests. She loved to travel. She loved to play tennis. <laughs> she would talk <laughs> about going places and now she had the means to do it. And I think LD, you'll love this. One of the things Whitney loved to do was vacuum. Okay, but there was no Dyson back then, so. Well, there might have been. Dyson's been around for a long time, right? Also like happy anniversary to our Dyson. It's now 10 years old. It is old. 10 years old. So according to those close to her, Whitney would vacuum her place no less than twice a day when she was home. Wait, twice a day? Twice a day. Girl, it's which, okay. Which meant if she had a show, she would come home and her neighbors at about three in the morning would hear a <laughs> And those She'd are like those, those big like With the bag, bags. Yeah. <laughs> but she loves to vacuum her place. Uh, you know what? If that, that's what made her happy. And this is around the time that the question of Whitney's sexual preference comes back into sort of the public conversation. Uh, when asked about romantic interests, Whitney would say adamantly that she did want a relationship, she did want a family, but not right now. In fact, her joke was, you'll like this, the only man in her life was her cat, a Russian blue named Misty Blue. Oh! Yeah. For those who don't know, we have a Russian blue named Lefty. Mm -hmm. She had a blue. He is a handsome boy. And that was, quote, the man in her life at this point. She wasn't seen out with guys dating or going to parties or whatnot. In fact, it was actually in Whitney's contract that all of her limo drivers had to be female. Oh, I like that. Yeah, had to be women. I like that. Which is interesting. Uh, to quote Whitney, she says, I don't have time to, the time it takes to nurture a relationship the way I'd like to. I'd never attempt to jump into one unless I knew I had the time. Again, eerie foreshadowing. And then there was the longtime friend of hers, Robin Crawford. Now, Whitney always denied any intimate relationship with Robin. Robin's memoirs would then be published several years after her death, in which she does point out several incidents, including the one I'm about to share with you. And this comes from her memoir, A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston. Allegedly, one night after meeting with Clive Davis, Whitney came to Robin late at night, handed her a Bible and said, we have to stop 
they're going to use this against us. Huh. That is an account from Robin Crawford. Oh, wow. So it does make you wonder what yeah. was going on there. And it became even more murky when Houston hired Robin as her live-in personal assistant. So Whitney is living on her own in a place she called the Lavender Place because she painted everything purple. Mm -hmm. And Robin actually became a personal assistant and moved in with her. And there were all sorts of rumors flying around of the two of them going out. Apparently they would go to parties with just women. Uh, there was a lot of sort of speculation at this point. How about we not make like... That a point? <laughs> how about we make their talent a point in music and yeah. not anything else and not any of your damn business. Pretty if much. If she wants to be gay, let her be gay. In fact, in, in some of the later interviews where Whitney gets a little punchier with the press, someone brings up the subject of her sexuality and she says, some, they say something to the, you. why do you think the press is asking? And Whitney snaps back. She's like, well, you're the one asking. I'm not asking anybody about what, you know, they prefer, basically. Um, I got to take what a what a weird dynamic that you have to sit and defend yeah. things like that. Yeah. So again, this was sort of a, a buzz around her that just kind of happened and the press just ran with it. Uh, there was yeah. also the subject of her being the quote, good girl and being a role model. Now, what was interesting was at this point, Dionne Warwick was established as a role model for young women, particularly young black women. And Whitney was the first to deflect any comparisons to Dionne. She basically said, you know, I don't want to be a role model. I understand that's important and women need a role model, but basically that's sort of a that's not me kind of thing. And then she brought up the subject of drugs, and this is going to make you shiver a little bit. Uh, in an interview about drugs, Whitney said, and here's a direct quote, some of my friends did drugs, but I avoided them. I didn't need them. I was already high. Drugs will kill you mentally and physically. You'll die one way or another. Jesus. Which is just... Wow shilling when you can Cre creepy super creepy foreshadowing yeah yeah at this point also whitney would have an unfortunate experience canceling a gig which would also not be her last canceling a gig also unfortunate in the summer of 1986 she was scheduled to perform in los angeles where she suffered from swollen vocal cords some alleged she had been out partying the night before this has not been confirmed she consulted a doctor who let her know that she should take a week off. She ended up canceling the LA performance. And as we all know, this would later become an ongoing problem with Whitney Houston. However, her career was poised for its biggest launch. By the end of 1986, she was touring internationally. Her album was a hit, but it was really that next album that's going to put her on the map, which was the self-titled Whitney. And we're going to go out on a long-distance dedication, Casey Kasem style, on that one. So before we close out the episode, I know we've got some business to tend to, but we will close out with a track from that album. Okay, so if you guys think we're doing a good job... And <laughs> Why, I can't, would you? I can't. <laughs> Why wouldn't you after this? <laughs> uh, most of this is going to be heavily edited, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for anything that snuck by. But anyway... If you think that we're doing a great job and you'd like to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Uh, we are restructuring that right now. And hopefully within a couple of weeks after everything sort of settles down, we will like to, uh, we are going to unveil the new Patreon for the show. Ooh. Uh, as far as our Twitter, you can find us at rock and roll LT. Please go over to Instagram and follow us over there. That's where you'll get a lot of the updates. We do try to share it to Twitter, but it looks like occasionally it just posts it like, Oh, they posted a, a new uh, picture over on Instagram. So that was our Twitter. So 
we're trying to get that straightened out as well. But Instagram is the best way to reach us. That's Rock and Roll Heaven LT. And you can check out our Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And I'm still not going to be saying our website. That's probably never going to change. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And please remember, guys, we are going to be doing a platform shift over the next couple of weeks. So some things are going to be changing. And uh, we just ask that you guys bear with us. Other than that, I just want to thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Please make sure to check out next week's episode where we hit up Whitney Houston part three. And I throw it to my brother for him to say goodnight. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye, guys. Have a great week. Now I'm going to close it out. And this is a song LD you're going to love. But this one actually goes out to my sister. Uh, she used to listen to this song and bop around. And she always got the lyrics wrong. Uh, the lyrics she interpreted were, I want to dance with somebody. I want to feel the peeps with somebody. <laughs> So that was her interpretation of the lyric. We're going to go out on probably one of her most well-known songs before we get into the height of Whitney Houston's popularity. Here is from the Whitney Houston album, I Want to Dance with Somebody.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 